You are Locked On the NBA, part of the Locked On Podcast Network. Locked On NBA today, David Locke along with Ben Golliver for the Thursday edition. Washington Post, Ben Golliver uh, joining us as he does on one of our Locked On NBA shows every week. How are you, Ben? I'm doing great. Just got done from the Clippers' big press conference with Kawhi Leonard and Paul George. They were uh, unbelievably excited and elated. You know, Steve Ballmer had his uh, typical celebratory spirit, and it feels like he wasn't the only one. I think that was kind of the uh, organization-wide sentiment. All right, let's get into it. What was your takeaway? What did you learn that maybe you didn't know when you walked in? Um, not a ton. I, I think that, um, you know, for the for the most part, it was – like a lot of the reporting suggested. I mean, Kawhi Leonard really liked the Clippers organization, their direction, uh, a lot of their returning players, but I think it was pretty clear that he wanted a a superstar sidekick, you know, somebody else to play, uh, you know, to help him kind of shoulder the load. Uh, And I think that there's a real mutual respect between him and Paul George because they both uh, are from Southern California uh, because they're both kind of two way guys because they, they both were, maybe under-recruited and didn't play at the big powerhouse programs coming out of college. And, and because they both, uh, you know, almost had a, a shared experience there in Indiana where, you know, uh, Kawhi Leonard was traded on draft night. Uh, otherwise, those guys would have been teammates before. So I think Paul George called it destiny that they came together. Uh, you know, Kawhi Leonard actually told everybody that he had spent years kind of hoping for and waiting for the opportunity maybe to play with a guy like Paul George. And now they here, here they come. I think the other part is just for a team like the Clippers, that's always been little brother in L.A., and that goes back, you know, since they moved to Los Angeles in the 80s. Uh, they were very eager to accept the title uh, expectations. They were not shying away at all from being kind of labeled as the favorites. I mean, whether it was uh, Steve Ballmer, uh, Doc Rivers, Lawrence Frank, uh, or the superstar guys. I mean, they were pretty much like, hey, uh, title pressure, bring it on. We want it. Uh, And that's just something that's very weird and almost like cognitive dissonance from the Clippers that we've known here for decades. It's really, it's an interesting idea. Let me throw a weird thought I had at you today when I listened to some of the things they talked about, about playing together. Had the Lakers not got LeBron James, do they have Kawhi Leonard and Paul George right now? And maybe do they have Kawhi Leonard and Paul George and Anthony Davis? Yeah, I know. I've run through some of those alternate histories too, and it, it makes me wonder you know, remember how all the rumors on LeBron James came out like a year before he actually went to the Lakers? It was almost like he was staking his claim. Do you think maybe he knew something that we didn't? Like maybe those guys all wanted to go play for the Lakers too, and he wanted to be the first one to get there? Uh, you know, it's hard to say, but um, I think that, uh, you know, one of the big takeaways, I think, from this process of, you know, the negotiations and all of that is this whole tampering discussion and uh, you know, for Kawhi Leonard, like, you know, there's been some allegations, okay, you know, is, is somebody, you know, close to him asking for things sort of, you know, outside uh, the bounds of what is, you know, legal and uh, permissible. Uh, and I think, you know, the, the, one of the messages kind of coming from the organization, just as background, was like, look, you know, Kawhi Leonard, the number one thing that he wanted from the Clippers was to play with Paul George. And so if there was ever sort of a, you know, a suggestion or a request or, almost like an ultimatum of sorts. It's like, hey, go get me that guy to, to, to play with. And I think, uh, you know, Kawhi Leonard also said it was a pretty close decision. I mean, he was weighing these different spots, in, including the Lakers, like you're talking about. And ultimately, sort of the tipping point moment was when the Clippers proved, hey, we can go get a player like Paul George. And not only that, you know, we're committed to you enough to sacrifice five first-round picks and multiple really good players to kind of prove it to you that we want you here. And I think those things went a long way for him. And that's why those two guys are Clippers rather than Lakers. 
Ben Gulliver, Washington Post, is with us. We'll talk about the tampering and the idea of extra benefits in our next segment. We'll stay on this press conference here uh, on this first segment of the show today. Lawrence Frank, I I just read the quote. I didn't hear him say it, so I want to know the perspective on it. When he just kind of said, hey, we know the rules. We followed the rules. Obviously, there's this feeling that the Clippers had somebody following Kawhi and around Kawhi all the time to show their commitment. Give me a little background on that quote from Lawrence Frank and and what kind of the context of that was. Yeah, well, so here's the first thing. I mean, to the victors go the spoils, right? I mean, if you went through the entire press conference with every single one of those guys, Balmer, Doc Rivers, uh, Lawrence Frank, and the two superstar players, the topic of tampering or the investigation the league office is supposedly, you know, launching into – uh, these different, uh, you know, issues of, of early contact that, that came out this week, it was never mentioned. And I think that, you know, basically after it was all said and done, I just asked Lawrence Frank, like, hey, what do you make of all this? I mean, obviously you guys have sort of been, you know, put in the middle in part because you won. You got two of the biggest stars this summer, uh, and people have been, you know, kind of raising questions about, you know, how they recruited or, or tracked Kawhi Leonard. But he was very forceful in his denial. He wasn't defensive about it. He was like, look, uh, you know, Steve Ballmer, you know, he does everything with integrity. We were trying to follow the letter of the law. You know, he you know, outright denied to me that they had had any illegal conversations with Kawhi or any of his people uh, before the you know, official start to free agency uh, on June 30th this year. And he basically said, look, we didn't do any illegal recruiting, uh, but he did acknowledge that they were you know, tracking his games very carefully, letting it be known. Uh, you know, if he wanted to look out into the audience in the stands, you know, they wanted Clippers officials to be there for him to see uh, and to just kind of lay the groundwork, you know, over the course of a year-long uh, program. But there's no question that these guys spent a lot of time, energy, mental effort, resources uh, chasing Kawhi Leonard, and they got their guy. And I think that, uh, you know, I think in, in uh, the NBA, much like everywhere else, what possessions like nine tenths of the law, right? Like I think that now they've got them. Uh, there, there's not really any going back. And I think for for Adam Silver, it raises some really interesting questions. Like, you know, what about what the Clippers did uh, should be viewed as illegal? Obviously, he did fine Doc Rivers $50,000 for the public statement about Kawhi Leonard on ESPN. I think that was the right thing to do. But frankly, I thought that should have been a bigger fine because uh, the, the Clippers were just very clearly operating in the gray area on that one. And, and they probably should have come down harder because, uh, you know, it kind of opens up, uh, you know, further avenues for other teams to do that in the future uh, for guys who are already under contract. I mean, to me, it's just sort of against the spirit of competition. Uh, but what about these other tactics? I mean, you know, is is there a limit to how often you should be able to go attend another team, uh, uh, you know, a different team's games to follow a certain player? Uh, is there anything else the Clippers did here that's going to, you know, wind up, uh, you know, leading to rules changes? I think that's one thing we should track as we go forward and hear the results of the NBA's investigation. Let me go to the, to me, and maybe this is because I went to college in L.A., the big picture item of the day. The front page of the L.A. Times tomorrow is going to be all about the Clippers and not about the Lakers. Absolutely unheard of. Unheard of. The idea that the Lakers, at moments in time, might not own that city. It's incredible, Ben. Oh, it's absolutely nuts. And, uh, you know, on top of that, Kawhi Leonard was asked about that very thing. Are you going to play in the Lakers shadow? And he said, you know, if you look over the last few years from the basketball standpoint, the Clippers have been better. And he also went on to say, if we go to the championship and win, 
and we don't get any media coverage, that's fine with me. So he's basically saying, look, let's settle this on the court. I thought that was, you know, the way he said it, there's sort of a dismissive vibe to a lot of the things that Kawhi Leonard says. And you rarely hear a LeBron James team get spoken about that like, like that, uh, you know, from another, uh, you know, big-time player. I thought it was almost dismissive. It was almost, uh, let's start a little war of words here, a little back-and-forth battle for L.A. And they were trying to stay, you know, really focused on winning the title. Uh, they feel like with the, with the two stars, the interchangeability, the defensive intensity that they're bringing to the table, um, you know, Kawhi Leonard as the closer. I mean, they're, they're really feeling good about their chances as the favorites in the Western Conference. But I also think that they're bringing over just years of residual, you know, chips on their shoulders from all these different years where they actually have finished higher in the standings than the Lakers, and they've really gotten no credit for it here over the last five years. So it's, uh, you know, it's a very interesting mix. Uh, but, you know, there was one Lakers fan who kind of crashed the unveiling of the big mural that they put up uh, in South Los Angeles that pictured uh, Paul George and Kawhi Leonard. And that Lakers fan was yelling at them, uh, you know, this is a Lakers neighborhood, guys. What are you doing? Steve Ballmer, he just wants to take you to Seattle. Tell him the truth, Steve. And they, he really didn't get much of a reaction at all uh, from the Clippers. But I'm sure that won't be the last time that they hear that. Uh, and their, you know, work in terms of taking over the city or really putting their impression uh, on the city as a whole is really just getting started. There's one significant news item out of this press conference. We'll touch on that. And there are two items going on about this whole issue of tampering or cap uh, circumvention. And we'll touch on those. We continue on Locked on NBA. Make sure you go find your local favorite team and their daily podcast. It still continues throughout the offseason because there's no offseason for a true fan on the Locked on Podcast Network. So, Ben, the one news item was kind of Paul George ducking the question of when he might play again. What, what was your vibe on that? Right. He didn't sound too concerned, but he did say, look, there's no set day. He didn't want to commit to I'll be back opening night. He didn't want to commit to I'll be back uh, for the start of training camp. And so that definitely was a, an open issue. Um, there also was, you know, some talk about, all right, are these guys going to manage the season a little bit? I didn't think they gave us a very clear idea. You know, is there going to be load management for Paul George or Kawhi Leonard? And I think if you're just taking a step back and you look at this roster of almost any roster in the league, they should probably be doing load management more than just about everyone else. They've got some quality depth. Um, they've got Paul George coming off of two surgeries. They've got Kawhi Leonard coming off of playoffs where he didn't look completely right. Uh, and so from that standpoint, like, what is their rush to, to go and try to claim the number one seed? I mean, what does that really get them? Uh, for Paul George, he realizes, you know, having a really strong start to the regular season, like he did last year in Oklahoma City, that doesn't do you much good if you wind up getting hurt down the stretch and, and you're not able to perform at 100% during the playoffs and you wind up, wind up going uh, out in round one. And same deal for Kawhi Leonard. A couple of years ago, he winds up losing a year of his prime because he wasn't able to get healthy and stay on the court. And then, you know, he has the other example of, well, look, if we take things slow during the regular season, uh, I can go and win a title with the Toronto Raptors. So to me, uh, I'm not sure if the Clippers are actually going to wind up being that one seed. You know, I wouldn't be surprised at all. You know, whatever their over-under is, I might bet the under uh, just because they, they might uh, adopt a cautious approach. Uh, but I do think that they're going to be, you know, good to go and, and up to, uh, you know, full health uh, by the time it matters. And that's really their focus. I mean, I think Doc Rivers said it best. He said, look, I know a lot of people are out there saying this is the greatest day in Clippers history. And when you look at their history, I mean, it's been a pretty rough 50 years. I mean, the curses, decades of losing, all these lottery trips and everything else. There's a pretty strong argument at that press conference just, and all the excitement around those two superstars. 
really is the biggest moment in their franchise history. But Doc said, look, uh, the, the real finest moment is yet to come. And we want it to be uh, in next June, uh, you know, in the finals for the first time as an organization. And I think uh, that's a pretty strong message. And I think he's right on the money with that one. He's Ben Golliver. He puts out a great newsletter from the Washington Post. You can go to the Washington Post, sign up for Ben's uh, NBA newsletter every week as well and get it in your email box. It's pretty fabulous. So make sure you go. Uh, do that. Let's get to the NBA issue at hand. There's two of them really out of the kind of discussion. One is tampering. The other that I think is actually a bigger issue is cap circumvention. Um, but and and the story that um, Brian Winhurst and Zach Lowe had was basically the commissioner's office saying to the owners. Like, are you right? Like, do you guys really want to be policed? Like, are you willing to be policed? I thought it was pretty eye-opening that, hey, you guys can all consider on a complaint, but you're in this together and decide what you want to do because we'll police you if you want to be policed. And if you don't, then let's make sure you're, you know, a little quieter about it. Yeah, I wonder how much of this is sort of generational too, right? I mean, like, you've got some new owners, and I think, you know, Ballmer, he might not be the youngest owner in the league, but – I think he's representative of like the new generation of owners where like the guy is just ultra aggressive. I mean, he's spent so much money on every other aspect of his organization uh, in terms of, you know, trying to turn them into a championship contender. Uh, it does. You, you do have to just think twice and say like, well, is this guy going to be comfortable playing in the gray area? Is he going to push the envelope as much as possible? I mean, we know how much he cares about basketball. You see him on the stage. He's jumping up and down kind of hooting and hollering. Like this is what motivates this guy. This is why he gets up, in the morning, of course, it seems like he's the type of person who would do whatever it takes, uh, you know, to get that high-level talent. But, you know, if you're the NBA and you really want to police it, like, how far does this go? I mean, are you going to have to hire, you know, like hundreds of investigators or monitors? Are you going to be encouraging, you know, organizations to really, like, snitch on each other? What, I mean, like, how far uh, do you take this thing? And uh, I think more crucially and, and more immediately, I think it's what rules do they want to keep and what rules do they want to get rid of? Because, it really seemed like at the board of governors meeting silver was almost, you know, going the opposite way and saying, you know what, we've got some rules out here about when people can talk to each other, whether it's teams and players before free agency and uh, we're not enforcing them. And it, it kind of seemed like he was just saying, well, we're not enforcing them. So maybe we should just get rid of them. Like why have rules that we're not enforcing? And I think that, you know, for a lot of owners, especially the super competitive and ultra aggressive ones, like they would prefer that because there's you know fewer hoops to jump through there's you know less of those Magic Johnson situations where you're on TV and kind of like you know winking at the camera and, and and talking about other players that you're not supposed to be talking about, which winds up getting sort of everybody annoyed and leading to these really uh, you know prolonged news cycles where you know, everybody just sort of waits for the leak's punishment. So I'm not sure the the best way to clean this up. I guess I'm more in the camp of fewer rules um, are better because uh, it would be so impractical to really hold teams to the letter of the law, but you know, how do you feel about it? I mean, do you think the, that this has all gotten away from the league a little bit? Well, it's, it's an interesting idea. So the ta- let's go zeroing in on the tampering. So if you have a player and like, let's say a player plays for the new Orleans Pelicans and let's say the Los Angeles Lakers want to just hypothetically want to talk to that player while he's a member of the new Orleans Pelicans, like, it seems really dirty and wrong, but it's not that different than if you work for Google and Microsoft comes to talk to you, right? And then if you like Google and you have a good enough thing with Google, then you stay. And if you don't really like Google, then you go to Microsoft. And so is there a way you can 
you know, if you have a player on a on the New York Knicks and the Boston Celtics are talking to him and talking to his agent, you know what? If he likes the Knicks, doesn't he just stay? Like, if you're taking care of your player and your player likes where they are, don't they just stay where they are? Yeah, and I think the big concern there is that a lot of these small market teams probably feel like they need some protection, right? That, like, uh, because not every market is equally appealing to superstar-level players, uh, that if they can't feel protected with the guys they already have under contract, that it just winds up being a situation where the flood of talent to certain markets that seems pretty inevitable once they hit free agency, uh, you know, can start to undercut and uh, imbalance the, the competitive landscape uh, against, you know, small market teams that might have star players who they're really relying upon can to I, succeed. Can I, can I we stop saw you that happen, for a second? We saw that happen. Okay, like, yeah, but didn't like, we see that happen in New Orleans this year? I, mean, like, that's sort I know of that was my joke, but like, but what is that protection? Like, okay, so a small market team says they want to be protected. Like what? Like somehow, like the player's not going to know that, like Giannis Antetokounmpo is not going to know that the Knicks and Lakers exist? Like, I mean, I don't understand. I mean, right. I got it. I do think there's, a, like, hey, it's a real issue that players want to play in, really, honestly, if we're honest about it, it's like three places. They want to play in Miami, L.A., and evidently Brooklyn. Um, but they don't really want to play in New York because the Knicks are that terribly run. But there are. There are like three markets where players want to play. That, But we haven't seen a flood of guys to Chicago. And then after that, there really aren't. It's not like we got 12 large markets. we got three desirable locations where players want to go play. And the Warriors maybe, but we'll see over time because it never was before. Um, so, but like, what is that? When you say protection, like, what do we like? Small markets need protection. What? Like, we're going to somehow tell them that there's not geography? Like, I, I don't actually even understand well, no, what that protection is. I, I, I hear you. Well, I think that, you know, one thing they were homing in on, you know, during the Board of Governors meetings was this idea of trade requests. And I think there's some merit to that because, look, if you have a disgruntled player, like, that's one thing, right? But if your player comes out and puts his name and or his agent's name on a public trade request, that changes the entire dynamic. It's even different, you know, compared to like saying, hey, this player wants to trade according to league sources. Like when Rich Paul comes out and starts a news cycle for the entire week saying, hey, Anthony Davis wants to be traded ASAP, we saw the level of damage that that can do. It was more than your typical unsourced trade requests. I mean, it ultimately led to Dell Demps, you know, losing his job to that organization going completely sideways, shutting down Anthony Davis, at least halfway shutting him down you know, down the stretch of that season. And it also wound up kind of backfiring on the Lakers and blowing up their locker room too. So I'm not sure what the benefit of, uh, of keeping the current level of punishment uh, for those kinds of things. I mean, to me, the punishment of things that are against the rules, whether it's talking about another team's players, if you're a team, or if it's requesting a trade when your player is already under contract, like the punishment for those those types of things should be prohibitive. I mean, significantly greater than like $50,000 where you're actually making these people think twice uh, and, you know, saying, is it really worth it, right? And I'm saying like, if this was the David Stern's NBA, don't you think Rich Paul would have been like fine 500K or like a million dollars or something that where it's like, all right, we're going to make an example out of him uh, and, and prevent this, you know, kind of uh, chaos from, from happening again in the future? I mean, to me, I think that is a reasonable degree of protection that you could offer uh, teams and players so that if there are disagreements or if there are desires to go somewhere else, there have, maybe those, have, those conversations happen behind closed doors uh, as opposed to in the court of public opinion where now everyone's involved and where it can get really ugly really fast. Who's better off? New Orleans, who got Lonzo Ball, a bunch of draft picks, Brandon Ingram, etc. 
the Oklahoma City Thunder, who got a million draft picks, and Danilo Gallinari, or Toronto when Chris Bosh left for nothing, or Utah when Gordon Hayward left for nothing. I, I think the best thing that might ever happen to you is if these guys tell you they're going to leave. Or Paul or Indiana when they got Victor Oladipo and Demata Sabonis. Like the three teams that have actually had a player demand a trade are far better off than the teams where the guy just leaves. Oh, for sure you want to trade rather than letting him leave for nothing. I agree with that 100%. But I actually think the Paul George case is a really good example where the amount of damage done to the Thunder franchise, whether it's from a PR standpoint, whether it's the fan base buy-in and everything else like that, is so much less than the amount of damage that was done to the Pelicans franchise. And let's be really clear. If they hadn't won the number one pick and the right to get Zion Williamson, like we would not be hailing like this entire situation as being – you know, a, a really good way it played out for them. Of course, they got a lot of draft picks. Of course, they got some young prospects who are exciting. Um, but it would be a much more dire situation if they didn't immediately replace Anthony Davis with another franchise-level player. And I actually think the Paul George situation where it played out entirely behind closed doors, uh, the Thunder did not have to worry about uh, you know anyone trying to like narrow their trade value of their market. They were able to kind of you know go out there and. Uh, you know, solicit offers without the public pressure, without, you know, some major, you know, timeline, uh, you know, 24-7, 365 ESPN and, and us talking about it day after day after day. They got great value and they left with their head held high and they, there wasn't, you know, negative feelings, bad feelings towards Paul George and it kind of was smooth. And I think in everybody's best interest, including the league office's best interest, um, that it didn't get ugly. And so I think that's a good example where if there's more situations like Paul George, and fewer situations like the Anthony Davis, I think everybody does win. He's Ben Golliver, Washington Post. There's a lot to be had there. We'll continue with him and talk on the court here in a second. Is there any chance that LeBron's actually old? Who is the favorite in the West? And let's, with some time to digest it, look at Westbrook and Harden. That's all coming up as we continue on Locked On NBA. Make sure you follow Locked On NBA Net on Instagram and Twitter for the latest of everything going on in the NBA. After having digested it a bit more, what is your latest understanding, feeling, energy on Westbrook and Harden together? I mean, my first gut in instinct was that it was not the right decision to to make, that they're, uh, you know, sort of taking on not only an extra year of, of Westbrook's contract, uh, not only his, you know, injury risk, you know, with his knees and, and things of that nature, not only his obvious kind of like fit questions in terms of how they are going to play together Harden and Westbrook on offense, uh, but they're also just taking on his, you know, pretty extended history of postseason struggles. And for a team that sort of, you know, psyched themselves out at times in the playoffs, for a team that I thought came very, very close to getting over the hump against the Golden State Warriors multiple times, uh, I don't really get the impetus for this trade. I mean, clearly there was some personality conflicts between James Harden and Chris Paul, but uh, my message if I was in their front office or, you know, anyone associated with that organization would have been to try to run it back again. Um, I just think that with Westbrook, uh, in the, he can give you, you know, regular, consistent, very productive nights during the regular season. Uh, but during the playoffs, he's going to have to play a lot of minutes with James Harden. I don't think you can stagger them in a way where uh, you're going to be able to work around the fact that Westbrook needs to have the ball and every possession that he has with the ball is a possession that James doesn't. And, you know, James has just been so much more efficient. His team offenses have been so much more efficient. Westbrook's shooting struggles from everywhere outside of three feet are very well documented. 
And then his lack of defensive uh, commitment and intensity play to play night to night. All those things just really, really worry me. And, and I guess if I was the Rockets, I wouldn't have done it. I would have just rolled the dice with uh, the chemistry, uh, you know, issues that they might have had, you know, holding over from last year. Um, and to me, uh, I had to have a very hard time of, you know, rationalizing this move. How does it really raise their ceiling? How does Westbrook's presence make Harden's life easier or make Harden's life better? Um, I just don't see it. Do you think Russell Westbrook's better than Chris Paul? I think in a vacuum, but I think he's a worse fit. You know, I think that Chris Paul is still a better defender, uh, especially in the postseason, uh, a more committed defender than than, uh, Russell Westbrook is. And I think that Chris Paul is also easier to get uh, contributions from in a secondary role on offense than Westbrook is. I mean, Chris Paul can shoot the three ball. uh, He can run the pick and roll. He can definitely run a second unit and, and get the most out of all your supporting guys. Uh, he can play off the ball, uh, and you know he can function you know fairly well. I know they got a little bit frustrated and chippy about that during the playoffs, uh, but their offense was still excellent uh, when those guys were you know sharing the court together over these last couple of years. And basically everything I just mentioned in favor of Chris Paul, I've got real questions about with Westbrook. I mean, if he's off the ball, he should be closing the court. I mean, teams should be daring him to shoot uh, in the half court. Um, and then also, I think stylistically, Chris Paul and James Harden, they both were able to succeed in that deliberate style that Houston kind of wound up adopting here over the last couple of years. And that's never been Westbrook's game. I mean, he has to get up and down. He has to be kind of frantic. He has to uh, beat teams with his energy. And I think you're just going to get into a situation where, uh, you know, those styles, you know, his style uh, and Harden's style are just going to clash. Uh, and there's just basically no way around it. I don't think that Westbrook can sort of play that secondary role to Harden and I don't think any coach in his right mind would ever you know encourage Harden to be playing a secondary role to Westbrook okay here's the one thing I do think is interesting this is a great conversation we could do a whole show on it maybe we will here's what's interesting to me Chris Paul ran 2200 pick and rolls last year almost 2300 Russell Westbrook actually only ran about 1600 last year oh excuse me 1900 so call it 2000 so like, I actually think James Harden might still get his 3,100 pick and rolls that he got and as many isolations as he got because actually Chris Paul ran a lot last year. Like, I'm a and, – and, and I understand. So I, I 100% agree with you on the idea that, hey, James Harden was the fourth best pick and roll guy of the top 100 guys who ran pick and rolls last year and Westbrook was 80th. So anytime you take the ball out of Harden's hands and you give it to Westbrook, it's a positive – I just have, as I've done the research on it, I've been a little surprised on how many possessions Chris Paul used last year. And it makes me begin to wonder whether or not maybe James Harden is still going to get exact same usage rate as he had before. If you combine the isolation numbers, Westbrook ran 300 more isolations than Chris Paul, but that's the same amount of pick and rolls that Chris Paul ran more than Westbrook. So it comes together at the same number and you still might be able to have James Harden have the same volume as he had before. I I hear you, but I'm actually be worried about what is the efficiency on those pick and rolls look like if Westbrook's off the ball and people are cheating off him in a way that they couldn't cheat off of Chris Paul. Uh, You know what I mean? And I think that when you have the ball in Westbrook's hand, like, he should have a little benefit of playing with their spacing and their their style in Houston. Uh, I think in Oklahoma City, I mean, they, they were never elite offensively after Kevin Durant left, and some of that was Westbrook's fault, but some of that was just their lack of shooting. So I do think the shooting will help Westbrook a little bit. 
uh, and he finished at a pretty high rate last year. And so hopefully you know, that those kinds of things continue and he gets even more opportunities at the rim. Um, but I, I just think we're coming into a situation where you get to the playoffs where like eventually, uh, you know, you want the ball in Harden's hands and you want the, and as many complimentary shooting options uh, and secondary playmakers like, uh, you know, an Eric Gordon's a great example of a secondary playmaker who fits perfectly alongside uh, Harden. And I just think in that playoff scenario, uh, I'm not sure how much Westbrook's really bringing to the table. I also think, you know, there's been a lot of focus on the offensive end. Uh, defensively, you didn't have to hide Chris Paul, right? I mean, he's, he is a, uh, uh, a strong defensive presence, even at this age, and not as, as good as he was, you know, three, four, five years ago, of course, because of, uh, you know, what stage he's at in his career. But I think if you're Houston now, you basically have to hide or at least kind of compensate for your two best players on the defensive end because, you know, they like, they like to stash Harden against big guys uh, every once in a while and keep him out of sort of the toughest matchups. And I just have a real question. Like, if you're looking at some of these teams with elite defensive ceilings uh, in the Western Conference, you know, can you win a title? Can you win that conference if you're hiding both your two best players defensively? I'm not sure I see that. All right, here's my final one for you. And I'm not trying to be hot take master here, but I'm, I'm, I'm actually dead serious in this. So if I told you I have a 35-year-old player who last year played the fewest games he'd ever played in his career, I've done a tremendous amount of research on this. There has basically only been one player in the history of the games ever led his team to the NBA Finals or near a championship who's played over 40,000 minutes. This player's played 46 thousand regular season minutes which i believe is the third most ever his field goal percentage dropped for the third three straight years and last year dropped three percentage points his three-point shooting dropped four percentage points signs of athleticism leaving he went his last three years his dunk total is 145 120 and 85 like would you be worried about that player He's saying how concerned I am about LeBron James and slippage. Is that yeah, where I mean, we're like going? Rim finishing, which is the number one athletic number that like tells you a player's getting old. 78, 76, 75. Like, they're still unbelievable numbers. But that's, like, hey, I've been fooled by this before. But, like, the, I hadn't dug into the numbers on LeBron until recently. Like, it's got to happen at some point. Is there a chance about, like... And, and, and I go to something Chris Weber once said. Chris Weber said, I'll tell you what, I walked into training camp one year and it was gone. I faked it for a few years after that, but I realized in one moment it was over. He said there's nothing gradual about it. And if I remember the Weber story correctly, he's like, I had averaged 20 the year before, so that's probably his Philadelphia 32-year-old year, and then was like, it just wasn't there anymore. Or maybe it was even he faked it the year before. It was his last year in Sacramento when he averaged like 19.5. But, like, I wonder, like, it, what do you think the chances are that basketball mortality actually hits the greatest player we've ever seen? Well, I think that LeBron has so many different basketball skills that let's even say he did hit the wall and it happened this summer. He would still find ways to be a valuable contributor, lots of different ways, still even on an all-star level, even if his athleticism was significantly uh, different than it was last year. But I definitely thought he showed signs of slippage last year, even before the injury. Uh, you know, the numbers that you're citing there in terms of what he's doing around the basket are, are very interesting. I think some of that could be explained by uh, their lack of outside shooting, 
So he's facing, you know, uh, a greater degree of, uh, you know, paint presence and the fact that they're always playing guys like JaVale McGee. So there's bodies in the middle uh, and they didn't have the, the world's greatest spread offenses like maybe he did in Cleveland. Um, I definitely think that contributes to some of it, but they could have still some of those same issues uh, heading into next season. I did like that Danny Green move for them for sure. Uh, and hopefully they're able to add some other shooters who can still get by defensively uh, so they can get back to playing the kind of style that has always favored LeBron the most. But I do think that a real cause for concern was when LeBron came back after the injury and said, hey, it's time to flip the switch. It's time to make this playoff rush. And he went to go flip the switch, and it didn't happen. You know, He was not taking over those games to the degree that he needed to. There were some embarrassing losses along the way, and I think sometimes people forget about those. But remember they lose to Phoenix in a must-win game? Um, just completely inexplicable. Uh, it never would have happened. Uh, two or three years ago for LeBron James. So I do think there's been some red flags. Uh, I, you know, I think that the Lakers hope will be that Anthony Davis sort of rejuvenates him, makes his life easier, gets him uh, easier looks for himself offensively, and then also takes over the, the heavy scoring load. I think the best case scenario for the Lakers next year is that Anthony Davis leads the league in scoring, that he's just feasting on LeBron James lobs over and over and over and over again. Uh, and that he winds up being the guy who's in that MVP conversation. I think that's what the Lakers would want to hope for uh, if they could reach uh, you know, their full, you know, their peak. But I do think if I'm the Lakers, one thing that concerns me is that LeBron at this stage of his career is not going to be an ideal defensive option in a playoff series against Paul George or Kawhi Leonard. Like You can't just say, hey, LeBron, you go take one of those guys out of the series. I mean, that's just not how it really worked. Uh, even against Kevin Durant in his last couple of finals against Golden State for uh, LeBron, uh, he he wasn't really you know playing defense at, at that kind of intensity play after play. And I think from the, the flip side is the Clippers could say, hey, Paul George or Kawhi Leonard, you go and try to take LeBron James out as best as you can, and we're going to rotate you through. So it just kind of feels to me like uh, the Clippers have two pretty good options for uh, L.A.'s best perimeter player. Uh, and the Lakers, you know, they don't have a great defensive option for either one of the Clippers' two-star perimeter players. He's Ben Golliver, Washington Post. Go get that newsletter from Ben. It's fabulous. It's easy. It's sign it up. It's free. All of that. Make sure you get that. Follow Ben on Twitter as well at Ben Golliver. And he and Andrew Sharp do the open floor. This has been another edition of Locked On NBA Tomorrow. We've got coming up your direction, Anthony Irwin and Adam Modis. And Monday, I'll be back with you with a special edition with Trevor Booker. That's all coming up here on Locked On Podcast Network.